might not know me. My name is not John Tierney. Just thought I'd throw that out there for no apparent reason at all. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, we thank you that though the circumstances of our lives may change from day to day, you never change. And we can always rest upon the rock of ages. Lord, and whether we're experiencing temporary trials or lifelong battles. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to trust in your love, to rejoice in your salvation, and to sing of your goodness to us. We pray for Pastor Toby as he comes, that you would fill him with your spirit and that these words would fill our hearts, that your spirit would show us the ways in which we need to change. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is uh, good and right at times to say thank you uh, publicly to people. And uh, I do want to take just a moment to thank all of the people from uh, Joe and Kyle and Adam and Nick and Mark and Austin and somebody else runs projection. Kathleen, well, you don't run projection. She used to. She quit. Uh, we were, no, there was some, there's a fourth person. Who is it? Liz. Thank you, Liz Ziegler. And uh, for Fran and for Steve and for Joseph and Dawn and Hannah and for Ellen and Ben and Derek and Susan and Paula and Colleen, all these folks uh, put in rehearsal time to... Uh, the, the Bible says that we should play, ex play and sing excellently to the Lord, and uh, that is not necessarily a measure that is relative to other people, but relative to our own capacities. And so I'm thankful for them. You should be thankful for them. Uh, I mention that today in part because you won't be seeing Colleen after this morning for a while. Um, she has something to tend to. Uh, uh, Silas will be born in about the next, in less than a month. And so we praise the Lord for his arrival. Uh, and so if you uh, are 
have capacities in music and would like to be involved in some way and you think somehow the door is closed, uh, you're a member of the church, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and I'd be glad to talk with you about that. But we should be thankful for those folks. We continue our study in the Psalms, in some selected Psalms. They address different experiences of life. That's why we're calling this series Psalms for Life. Now, in case you didn't know, the Psalms are primarily arranged in books. There are five books of Psalms, not equal numbers of Psalms in each book. Uh, But each book of Psalms, the first one goes from Psalm 1 to 41, ends with a doxology and then book two begins, and it ends with a doxology. Uh, and the last book ends with this tremendous doxology, where in 13 times in six verses we're told to praise the Lord. Uh, and so uh, that's the primary way. But about 100 years ago, scholars began to think of the Psalms in another way of arranging them, just for study's sake, and that is to put them together by their type. Now, they're all poetry, but different types of poetry, different subject matter, if you will, different things they're communicating. So there are psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving. There are royal psalms, which explicitly uh, point to the coming of the King that God promised, the Messiah, Jesus. There are what are called imprecatory psalms, which is when uh, the psalmist is calling on God to send judgment on his enemies and to defend his people. There are pilgrimage psalms, especially the psalms of ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, that people would sing as they, psalms of ascent, because they would sing them as they travel up to Jerusalem. Psalm 13, though, falls in the largest category of psalms, and that is the psalm of lament. It's fitting that the psalm of lament is the biggest category, isn't it? Because the troubles and the pain of life are both frequent and they are common to all of us. Something in each of these psalms is pressing on the writer's soul, and he calls out to God in the midst of his anguish. Not an uncommon experience. And it's in the context of the troubles of life that despair can actually set in, a sense of hopelessness, of sinking, of drowning, And when we are there, when that's our experience, turning to a psalm like this one is actually quite encouraging. It's quite helpful. It's a really good idea. Because from a psalm like this one, we learn that by faith, we can climb out of despair and into hope. By faith, we can climb out of despair and into hope. This is one of David's psalms. It is uh, to the choir master, so it is... Singable, if you want to write a melody, maybe we could work it in. Uh, start in a minor key, though. You don't start singing how long in a cheery, you know, a cheery, uh, cheery key. Um, but I want us to think about both David's despair and his determination in this psalm. And see how we, by faith, can climb out of despair and into hope. So let's begin with David's despair. Listen to it again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You can just hear the desperation in his words, can't you? You don't even need tone. I don't have to, in, I don't have to give any kind of emphasis to anything. You can just sit in the quiet and read that and feel the desperation coming across. His suffering isn't trivial. It is substantial. He is in a dark place with a heavy heart and a lowered head and a foggy mind and empty eyes and slumped shoulders and sapped energy. He may put on a good face for public, yeah? When he goes to work or he goes out with friends or he goes to church if he gets out of bed at all. But behind the smile is a black hole of hopelessness. And despair fills the air that he breathes. Despair dulls his taste buds. Despair feels the prick of the rose's thorn, but is blind to the rose's beauty. Despair changes the music of his mind from Beethoven's Ode to Joy to Chopin's Funeral March. You feel his despair? How long, O oh Lord? Will you forget me forever? His despair, his depression is clear. What's not clear is the circumstance. I mean, David speaks of an enemy, and he could be referring to Saul being hot on his heels, chasing him down. But he also talks about the Lord lighting up his eyes in verse 4, which is an indication of a change in physical state as well. That's a way to talk about being restored to health. There's to be some kind of illness that has set in, some kind of physical ailment. Scholars debate whether actually this enemy is an actual human being or whether it's the personification of illness or of death or of evil or whatever it is. Then they go back and forth and they could probably sit in front of, sit in a table in front of us and go back and forth and some of us would go away with one thought and some of us would go away with another. But I want to tell you that I am thankful for the ambiguity. Do you know why? Because the downward spiral of despair can start in any number of painful circumstances. It doesn't begin in any single location. It could be a loss. It could be a relational conflict. It could be a physical illness. It could be the sin of others against us. It could be my sin. The descent into despair isn't so much about our circumstances as it is about the heart's response to those circumstances. That's where the spiral really gets going. That's where the descent gets steeper and steeper. And so I want us to think about David's despair here. He begins with a desperate experience. He explains his experience. He doesn't say... He doesn't give us, like last, last week we looked at Psalm 56, right? He clearly told us what was going on. They're after him. They're ruining his reputation. All these things are going on. All he's saying here is it hurts. This is a desperate experience. Four times he says, how long? 
going so far as to say, will you forget me forever? There is no period at the end of his suffering. His suffering is, if you remember, the Energizer Bunny. It keeps going and going and going, and he wakes up the next day, and it's still going. Whatever it is, it has gone on and on. You see, what's interesting is that the day that suffering arrives on our doorstep, the day that suffering makes itself known, unexpected loss, financial problem, work changes, something with your friend, your spouse, your kids, your health, whatever it is, the day that it hits, and hits hard, you could have this immediate kind of burst of spiritual adrenaline, like, I'm going to walk by faith, and we're going we're to walk through this. But as time goes on, do you know what often happens? The strength of resolve can weaken. It's like a heavy weight that you can momentarily lift. Pam, Pam and John Aldridge gave us an organ, like a full organ, like an organ. Not like this, okay? This is nothing, all right? Organ, all right? So we had to lift this thing out of their house, and I, I, we had about eight feet from the door to the back of the van where we were going to slide it in. And I had the two boys on the other side, and I was on the one side, right, because Dad can do this, right? So, I, so, you know, in this rush of adrenaline, whew, I can lift the organ. But do you know if we had to stand there and wait? If we had to walk 50 yards with this organ, what happens? That initial rush of energy, you're just like every step, it gets heavier. I mean, it's not actually changing in weight, but it gets heavier somehow. And your grip weakens. That's what can happen when the suffering goes on and on. It's like the marathon that you start at too fast a pace thinking, I have got this. And around the half mile mark, you realize this is going to be forever. And the miles stretch out in front of you and you can't even see the finish line. That is what suffering can do as it goes on and on and on. The path of suffering may be entered with great zeal and resolve, but that zeal can fade with each passing month, each passing year, each passing decade. How long, O oh Lord? Andrew Fuller noted, it is not under the sharpest but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. When Job was accosted with evil tidings in quick succession, he bore it with becoming fortitude, but when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them. The struggle seems endless. The struggle seems endless. That's what we see about this desperate experience. The second thing is that God seems distant. The struggle seems endless, and God seems distant. Now, David knows very well, he's been to systematic theology class, he knows very well that God is everywhere, God is omnipresent, 
He even writes about it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He knows it, but you know, even though he knows God's here, it's like God's not actually here. It's like he's here, but he's not here. Not really. It's like when you're talking to a friend, or dare I say, a spouse, and it's like they're there, but they're not there. So I never have that problem with Susan. She typically has that problem with me. Like, I'm there, but I'm not there. And there's just, their mind is somewhere else, right? And that's what David feels like. He feels this disconnect. This sense of disconnect is actually expressed in two questions. The first is right at the beginning. Will you forget me forever? Now, in asking, will you forget me forever, David is not questioning God's cognitive ability. He's not wondering whether God has absolute recall of him. He's questioning whether God will help. Whether God will just forget him, as in leave him there helpless. That's what he means by forget. You see, when God sees and remembers, he is poising to help. You remember in Exodus, uh, 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 God is a, just before God calls Moses to go and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, we read this, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Those are not, that's not just a litany of things God sees and hears and remembers and understands. That is a way of saying God is about to act. And David knows this and says, well, if you remember and you acted there, you are not acting here, so will you forget me forever? Are you going to help at all? Or can I expect to do this on my own? The second question, how long... Will you hide your face from me? Not only is God's help absent, his blessing seems absent as well. The hiding of God's face is an expression of his alienation, of his curse, actually. You remember the priest's blessing in number six? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. When God's face shines, that is blessing. When God's face is hidden, that is a curse. Will you forgive me forever? How, how long will you hide your face from me? You see how God seems distant? He has no sense of God's help coming anytime soon. He has no sense of God's blessing. And actually, we can come to that same conclusion when we don't see temporal blessings in our lives, can't we? When the prayers for health and for healing go unanswered in the way we would expect them to be answered. When the marriage that started as sweet has gone sour or cold. Where the ministry that we're doing, once seemingly fruitful and growing and blossoming, levels off or even declines. 
the children who were cute and sweet and the subject of every Facebook post at a young age because they were always doing things that everybody on, in the internet world should celebrate have now gone off the rails and are living contrary to everything that you taught them. The job you started with great promise isn't what was promised. And it's more like drudgery than the dream that you thought it would be. No one is immune from asking, will you forget me forever? How, how long will you hide your face from me? Where are you? God seems distant. And hope seems lost. The struggle seems endless. God seems distant. Hope seems lost. Verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have, my sorrow, and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David takes counsel in his soul. He is mulling it over in his mind. He is churning it in his heart. And all he can come up with is sorrow. Now, later in our series, we'll look where the psalmist is speaking to his soul, but not just to churn the problem over and over. He's churning the problem until he gets the butter of sorrow. I mean, that's what he's doing. That's all he will do so long as he churns the problem. He just goes over it and over it. Is your ever mind you're just raced around like that? Like all you can think about is the problem. All you can think about is the problem. All you can think about is the problem. And you spiral down and down and down and down. And it gets faster toward the bottom, doesn't it? Hope seems lost. I mean, elsewhere, the psalmist will write, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And right now, in this state of mind, the only thing David can see from the rising of the sun to its setting is sorrow all day every day he wakes up he eats it for breakfast he goes on a walk with it he eats it for lunch he hears it in the words of other people he hears it swirling around his mind he eats it for dinner he meditates on it and then he goes to bed and rests his head on it as he sleeps how, how long will I have sorrow all the day How long will I, as I turn this around, how long am I going to keep coming up with sorrow? Richard Sibbs wrote, Those ever lack comfort that are much in quarreling in themselves and through their infirmities are prone to feed upon bitter things. These delight to be looking on the dark side of every cloud. There's no comfort in just churning over the problems, is there? You ever just come to the end of a long, good day of churning over your problem and thinking, wow, that's a lot better? You haven't. Because that's not where that goes. 
you look for silver linings, but you miss them, and all you can see is the dark cloud inside it. Hope seems lost. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Maybe someone you know, someone you love is there now. A desperate experience. And then we move into a desperate cry for help. In verses still under David's despair, he, this is a despairing prayer here. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. They're essentially, I mean, you see them in quick succession. Three petitions that David makes in this desperate cry for help. He says, consider, which is essentially a way of saying, look at me. To the God that he believes has hidden himself, hidden his face, forgetting him, he says, look at me. Look. Pay, pay attention to what's going on here. Second, he says, answer me. Do something. He's believed that God has forgotten him, withheld his help in David's time of need. And David cries out, do something. Help me. Answer. And third, light up my eyes, which could be one of two things. One, it could be the light of physical healing. It could be the light of, re of uh, restoring him from whatever ailment that he's experiencing. Or it could simply be he wants his eyes to be lit up because he knows the peace and favor of God once again. That he knows that God sees, that he knows that God isn't ignoring him. That, that that knowledge will lift his face, if you will. It'll put the sparkle of God's grace back in his eyes. That's what he... Look, do something, bring restoration. It's no ordinary petition, is it? This is urgent. Even If you just had those three things, you would think he's just saying, Ah, oh, Lord, consider and answer and light up my eyes. Amen. But he doesn't. He lays out how urgent it is, doesn't he? Lest I sleep the sleep of death, which could be literal death. It could also be just a greater malaise coming upon him, a deeper surge into pain or evil or whatever it is that he's in, farther down into uh, the darkness of the circumstance. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I mean, friends, this is a desperate man. Praying a desperate prayer. And many of you have been there. And if you haven't, you may just not have felt the desperation of your circumstance. But you've been there. You've been on your knees. You've been weeping for your child, for your friend, for the pain, for the whatever it is. You've been crying out for God to intervene, knowing that if, if He doesn't act, it's going to get much worse than it is now. Now certainly, this kind of desperation, um, it is important that we, we don't want to be the people, right, who go to the Lord as the last result, as the last resort, right? We've tried everything else, 
Now I'm going to try prayer. And this can feel like the kind of prayer that one prays as a last resort, right? If you don't do something now, you've got 10 minutes or it's all over. Look, I've been there. I was on my knees putting my face on a bed, weeping in Liberia. Georgia is two years old, and she's sitting right in front of me on the bed playing with whatever toy I brought. And I'm pleading because if I don't get the visa that day, I'd gone to the consulate, I'd done all the things, but if I don't get the visa that day, we're not getting out of the country for another week. As time goes on, the country actually closes and no child within a few weeks of then leave the country because some allegations in a whole different part of the country have to be sorted out. I'm just pleading and I'm weeping and I'm praying. I'm praying what the, 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 the leper says in Mark 1, if you will, Lord, you can. And if the office closes that day, I am here for another week. I can't afford it. I mean, this was, this was like, this is not even real suffering. I just wanted to get out of the country and go home, but I'm weeping and pleading, and there's a deadline on it, right? There's this sense of, if God does not move this government, I will not get to take my daughter home today. he did. But we don't want to be those people who look to prayer as a last resort. But did you know that there is something worse than looking to the Lord as a last resort? It's not looking to the Lord at all. Thinking that we have this. I mean, it's one thing to be in despair. It's one thing to be depressed. It's another altogether to not want to go to the Lord at all, to feel there's no use in praying, there's no use in worshiping, there's no use in being around God's people, there's no use in reading the Scripture, there's no use in any of it. It is one thing to be in despair, but when that happens, dear friend, the despair has gone truly dark and we are at the precipice of the sleep of death. So take heart, even if your cries are desperate. Even if we look to the Lord through dim eyes. Even if it's only a pinhole of hope's light in your heart. Praise God, it's there. And if it's your friend, your loved one, go to the Lord with them. Be the friend who just picks up their pallet and takes them to Jesus. Don't ask them if they want to pray. Just pray. They say, we're going to pray. And I hope your heart says what we're praying. This is David's despair. It's an awful place that he's in. But his desperation, his experience of desperation hasn't extinguished his faith. Not yet. Because at the end of this prayer, things take a turn upward toward hope. 
You know, in less than an hour, the green flag will fly, right? And drivers will drive 500 miles doing nothing but turning left. Left turn, left turn, left turn. Go to the pit, left turn, left turn, left turn. Circling the infield, right? That's what despair can be like, can't it? It can just be like taking a lap around Psalm 13, verses 1 to 4, over and over and over and over again. Let me tell you about my let me tell you about the depth of my pain. Let me tell you about the desperate prayer I prayed. But let me tell you again about the depth of my pain. And then, yes, I prayed a desperate prayer. But let me tell you about the depth of my pain. And let me tell you about my prayer. Let me tell you about the depth of my pain. And you just go round and round and round and round. I sat with a friend five years ago who was in complete despair because of where he was in life. He had one, at one time been a great influence on my life and our lives just went different ways. But I sat with him as he talks about the depth of his pain because his life isn't where he wants it to be, about his desperate prayer for God to change his life so that it's where he wants it to be. And I tried to encourage him, tried to speak words that would point him to contentment, right? Point him to what the Lord is doing in his life and all of these things. And I didn't see him for five years until last month, and I sat next to him. And within five minutes, do you know what we were doing? We were taking a lap around his despair and his prayer, which were the exact same as five years ago. And if I were to tell you what it is, which I won't, you would think, I mean, this isn't like the pain of cancer. This isn't like the pain of grief. This isn't like the, the pain of, of any number of things. This, this was just he didn't have what he wanted in life. Even that circumstance spiraled him down into despair because of how he responded to it. And he's still there, believing that if his circumstance changes, he'll no longer be in despair It's just left turn after left turn after left turn. And David does the unimaginable, both in racing and in despair. He turns right. In verse 5, but I... And this is where we see David's determination. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I want to propose something to you. That David's determination did not come out of nowhere. That David's determination actually did not originate with himself. And he is not determined in his own strength to do these things. Listen to David's prayer again. Look at me. Do something. 
bless me once again. Do you know what verses 5 and 6 are evidence of? God saw. God brought help. And God is blessing David. We see no evidence that the circumstance has changed at all. There is no indication that he feels better, that the enemy is gone, or anything like that. The only thing we see in verses 5 and 6 is not a change in circumstance, but a change in David walking through the circumstance. That's what we see in verses 5 and 6. That's what this determination is, is to live in, in essentially in our terms, to live the Christian life in a really awful situation. Can you imagine? Think of the beauty and the glory and the wonder. Look, everybody wants their circumstances changed. Everybody will say, bless God, if their circumstances change. Even people who don't give God the time of day any other day of their lives will say, well, God's blessed me if their circumstances have changed. The thing that is beautiful, the thing that is strange and peculiar and unique and one of a kind and will make you stand out that would in the midst of something that would actually demonstrate that you have hope is for nothing to change except you. That's a wonder right there. I don't know how he does it. How does he walk through this with such integrity? How has he not walked away from the faith? How has she not completely repudiated Christianity? How how have they not just thrown in the towel? God in His grace comes to David to make David a man after God's own heart in this circumstance. In his determination, he's determined to do three things. He is determined to trust He is determined to trust. The steadfast love here in the Hebrew is chesed, which speaks of God's faithfulness to the covenant that He made with His people. It is steadfast love. If you have, I think the King James translates it mercy, but steadfast love is much more descriptive because this is is a committed, dedicated, trustworthy, constant, loyal love. It's not going anywhere. This love is unchanging because God is unchanging. And David is committed to the notion that God's love for him has not changed. David refuses to measure 
God's love toward him by the circumstances of his life, but rather by the character of God. You want hope? That's where hope is. That's hope that doesn't make sense to anybody. Is hope that is rooted in the character of God and not the quality of my circumstances. David's dark circumstances don't reveal that God's different. It just reveals that he needs a renewed trust. He has trusted in the steadfast love of God, and he may be clueless as to how long this is going to go on. He may be clueless as to how long he won't see practical help come through other people. He may be clueless as to how long he won't feel blessed by God. But one thing I know, nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in this covenant that He has made. And David clings to it with every bit of grace-empowered strength that he can. He's not going to let it go. He's also determined to rejoice. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. This doesn't mean he's just silently reflecting in his heart. Rejoice here is a kind of roar of exultation. It's the joy of a parent seeing a child mature in wisdom in the Bible. It's the joy of a bride and a groom on their wedding day. It's the joy of victory over an enemy. It's a heart that is so full that the mouth can't help but burst in shouts of delight. And most often when we find this word in the Bible, it, it, it is in connection with a reflection on the character of God, on who God is, on what God has done. To, to, when David says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation, he's not saying, I'm going to make sure I keep pasting on a smile so people think nothing ever bothers me. David is deeply bothered. These are bothersome circumstances. But he will rejoice, not by pasting on a smile, but by reflecting on a God whose salvation makes the heart explode with joy. That somehow, in the midst of shedding tears in his pain, he will shout joy in the Lord. that seems strange to you that's because it is but it is what happens for those who know God who can say with Paul in prison who doesn't know whether he's going to live or die he'd prefer that he live for the sake of others but it'd be better if he dies and he says Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, rejoice. 
Same man sits in stocks and sings hymns to God in the darkness of a cell. Determined to rejoice. Third, he is determined to sing. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This psalm, if you will, started with sighing and it ends with singing. Here's the wonderful thing about singing, the wonderful thing about music, the wonderful thing about songs is that God has ordained that music help us to remember who He is and remember what He's done, that the music that we sing, the songs that we sing, the hymns that we proclaim, these are meant to feed our faith. That's why when Paul says we're to encourage one another with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that's why that does that. Because this is part of God's ordained purpose for music, is to actually feed and nurture our faith. So that, so that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Blessed be your name. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what a friend we have in Jesus all our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Who has held the ocean in His hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and kingdoms tremble at His voice. All creation rises to rejoice then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art or this one O fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head don't judge the lord by feeble sense but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides a smiling faith. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You ever wonder what David sung? I don't know, maybe he sung his own hymns. I wonder if he happened to remember some lyrics that Moses wrote. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. 
my father's God, and I will exalt him. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is why it matters what we sing. It cannot simply be appealing to the ear. It must be feeding to the soul. It must be something we can remember and sing when we are at the bedside of a dying brother and sister. When we are about to go into a contentious meeting in our workplace. When we have no clue where our child has run off to and we are desperately searching for them. When we've prayed for years for that person to be saved and still no answer. It's why it matters what we sing. He's determined to trust. He's determined to rejoice. He's determined to sing. And if we are going to climb out of despair, dear friends, and into hope, by God's grace, we must share these kinds of determinations to trust what we know of God in His Word, to rejoice in Him and to sing. We must treasure God more than ourselves. That's what's happening here. We must treasure God more than relief. We must treasure God more than different circumstances. We must treasure God more than getting what we want. We must take every thought captive in obedience to Christ and trust and rejoice and sing. And the turning point is, but I. This struck me this week. Did you know that in every case of despair there is always a but I? It's either David's kind, I see my circumstances, they are dark, they are hard, it's painful, God seems absent, darkness seems to have the upper hand, but I know God, I know His steadfast love, I will rejoice in Him, I will trust Him. He has dealt bountifully with me. Or it's, look, I know God. I, I know He's faithful. I know He's dealt bountifully with me. I trust, I sing, I rejoice, I do all of that. But I see my circumstance. It is hard, it's painful. It's been a long time. God's nowhere to be found. And darkness has the upper hand. You hear the difference? You will say, but I, in every despairing circumstance that you are in. It will either be a turn from the circumstance, but I will look to God, or it will be turned from God, and but I will focus on my circumstance. And this is where my hope lies, and this is where the future is. Which one has been your but I? Oh, how the devil would love to keep us spiraling downward. To keep our eyes fixed on the darkness, fixed on God's seeming absence, fixed on ourselves and our feelings. But friends, we must fix our eyes elsewhere on David's descendant, Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus didn't have a sense of God turning his face away. 
God turned his, the Father turned his face away. Jesus didn't just have a sense that no help was coming. No help was coming. Jesus prayed for the cup of suffering. Consider, answer me. If this can pass, turn it away, God. And the Father said, no. And Jesus slept the sleep of death. And Jesus' enemies rejoiced because he was shaken. But the Father lit up his eyes on the third day when he raised him from the dead as the full and final demonstration of God's steadfast love to us, to all who would trust in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, you see, by dealing brutally with his own son, God now deals bountifully with us. And we receive the forgiveness of sin, and we are counted righteous, and we are guaranteed eternal life. And God's covenant love, his steadfast, unfailing, redeeming love is ours, and nothing, no nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Do you know that love? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because to cry out how long in this life is one thing, but for the soul that does not look to Jesus Christ for salvation, that soul will be crying how long for all eternity. Under God's just condemnation. Turn to Jesus, friend. Take him by faith as your Savior. You see, for those who do, for those who know, have been saved through Jesus, because the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, so by faith, we can climb out of despair and into hope. We can both sigh under trial and sing to the Lord, knowing that our sorrow may last for a night, the long, dark night of a life riddled with trial. But joy comes in the morning. Ultimately, we get tastes of it here, don't we? But ultimately, the joy will be when the morning dawns in the new heavens and new earth and there is no more mourning and there is no more crying and there is no more pain and no more despair. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection and then we'll pray.